All right, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians this morning. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 1027. As you turn there, I want to give you just a little bit of context since we're jumping into the middle of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul planted a church in Corinth during his, one of his missionary journeys, which you can actually read about in Acts chapter 18. I'd encourage you to take a look at that this week. Over the course of time, though, this relationship that he had with the church was, be, became complicated by tension and conflict. You see, the, the Corinthians, uh, they excelled in a lot of things. They, they, they were not limited to any of the spiritual gifts. They seemed like the, the Lord was, was blessing them with a lot of things. And, and they started to grow prideful. They started to forget God. They, they started to elevate their own status. And so they began to actually discredit Paul because they viewed him as this poor and weak man who suffered. We know Paul's sufferings. And, 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 and as a weak speaker, in fact, he talks about it in 1 Corinthians. Like, I didn't come to you with wise words and, and you know, persuasive speech. I came to you in the power of the Spirit to show that this is from God and not from me. And so they turned their gaze away from Paul, away from God, onto these so-called super apostles. Maybe we would call them like Instagram influencers today, right? And these super apostles were, were way more important, way more impressive, better speakers. They had all the, the swagger and all that stuff. And, and so the, the Corinthians uh, started following them. But the problem was that these Super apostles were false teachers who used their influence and authority to lead the Corinthians astray and to solicit money from them. They were greedy. That's all they wanted. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to defend his God-given credentials as an apostle sent by Jesus and to remind the Corinthians of his enduring love for them and then to point them back to gospel-centered living in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul's going to urge the Corinthians now to prove their own dependence upon God's grace and their love for God's people. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, we'll find that it's not just a test for the Corinthians, but it's a test for our own hearts as well. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord to, to guide our hearts, and then we'll dig into the, to the message. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word is faithful and true. We thank you that everything written in it is for our instruction to teach us your way of grace and to help us walk in it. We pray that that would be not only our aim, but what you would accomplish in our hearts this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to be very clear from the outset here, okay? We're not just looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 this morning to kickstart a fundraising campaign where we're going to have like a thermometer up here and, and we're going to try and fill this thing, Right? We're looking at this passage this morning for the same reason that we look at any passage on any Sunday morning. This is super important that we understand this. Because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. He wrote it through all of the human beings that wrote it. And God cannot lie. That means that all scripture is profitable to us for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think if we're honest, all of us can admit that we don't walk in here having realized all that God's word has to tell us and are living in accordance to it, regardless of what Sunday we come in. We always have room to grow, right? 
And so our aim this morning is that our hearts are more and more aligned with God's heart through his word, by his spirit, and together as his church. Now, most of you know that for a long time, I've been reluctant to talk about money up here from the front, to to talk about giving in order to guard against any appearance of greed or selfish gain. You know that I I don't, I just, it makes me uncomfortable. And and, um, there are too many examples for us of pastors and church leaders who make money the main thing, which again, for those of you that are, this is your first time here, this is like literally the first message where we focused on money, <laughs> okay? Um, I am hopeful, though, that by now you know my heart is to make Christ the main thing, okay? And so when I come and I preach this today, I want you to know that I've been preaching this to my own heart all week long, and I, for many weeks, actually. And, and, and in my reluctance to, to talk about this on a regular basis, I've actually failed to do the mission of our church, to actually help us connect money and giving to our everyday way of life in Christ and the gospel together. And so I'm here to ask your forgiveness for that and help you see that I'm a brother in Christ who needs to grow right along with you, not above you, but next to you. I need, I confess, that I need the correction of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in my own heart this morning. God's word is not reluctant to talk about this topic. Jesus talks about possessions in almost half of the parables that he gives. Half. By one author's count, giving and possessions are mentioned 2,172 times in the Bible. That is over 800 more times than prayer, love, and faith combined. The Bible's not shy about this. I'm sure that in this room there are a variety of perspectives, experiences and backgrounds, both positive and negative when it comes to financial giving in the local church. But I want you to know that as your pastors, Ben and I feel that this is an opportune moment in the young life of our church for us to invite God's spirit to recalibrate our minds, recalibrate our hearts together as we come humbly to God's word and hear God's perspective on how the realities of the gospel connect to the realities of our lives in this area. See, money tends to be a taboo topic in the church. And in my own heart, it's taboo because it feels like any emphasis on money actually somehow cheapens the gospel. Paul's gonna remove that stigma for me, and my prayer is for you as well if, if you share that with me. He's going to help us see that our relationship with money is never separate from our relationship with the gospel. In fact, through his challenge to the Corinthians, he's going to show us that the way we treat money is actually directly proportional to the way that we view the gospel. So here's the main thought of the whole uh, shebang this morning, okay? The whole sermon, the the whole passage. A church that is living richly in gospel promises is a church that is giving generously for gospel purposes. Now, even when I say those words, you're already forming some kind of assumption about what those words mean. Bear with me, and we will walk through this and explain from God's word what generosity looks like, what gospel richness looks like. Paul's primary purpose during his missionary journeys was to preach the gospel and to plant and strengthen churches in these Gentile regions, but he also put significant effort toward taking up a collection 
from those churches to send back to the church in Jerusalem in order to ease some of the hardships that the Jewish Christians were facing there, okay? The Corinthian church had, uh, this, this church plant had promised to contribute to that need in Jerusalem, but they had not followed through on that promise yet. And so Paul starts this section by reminding them of some of the other, excuse me, church plants that were eager to give. So let's jump in. 2 Corinthians 8, we'll go 1 through 6 first. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. And so we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they were not only facing a severe famine in their region, they were also excluded from the Jewish community for following Christ. They were, they were uh, heavily taxed both by the Romans and the Jews. And as the first established Christian church, they were responsible for sending out apostles and, and, and missionaries and supporting them as they preached the gospel and planted churches. And so as a result of all of these things, they were financially strained. Here Paul says that even in spite of their own hardships, the Macedonian church plants were eager to give what they could to help ease the hardships that their brothers and sisters in Christ were facing in Jerusalem. Imagine this, okay? Gentiles joyfully and eagerly supporting Jews. Why? Because they were all Christians, united as one one body in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the new covenant unity that they now share in Jesus. One church, Jew and Gentile alike. The Philippians, the Bereans, the Thessalonians, <coughs> excuse me, these were some of the church plants in Macedonia. Paul was most likely staying in Philippi as he wrote these words to the Corinthians, the, the letter to the Philippians in, in our, our Bibles. This is, this is where he's at, Philippi. And notice how he tied the generosity that came from those churches to the grace that they had received from God, right? Normally, in our experience especially, it's the missionary that goes to the churches and begs them to support him or her, right? Here we have the churches themselves begging to give. Is that not grace? Is that not grace even though they were experiencing affliction themselves, deep affliction themselves, the Macedonian church plants considered it a privilege, a joy to be able to contribute to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. We need to understand this. Churches only think that way when they are convinced that God is God and money is not. Churches only think that way when they are convinced that God is God and money is not. When they are convinced that giving is not just for the purpose of ministry, but hear me, giving itself is ministry. It's gospel ministry. In verse four, that word privilege in the Greek is the same word that gets translated as the word grace in other parts of this passage. The Macedonian churches, they understood that, that God was graciously giving them this opportunity to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ and that by doing so, 
they would be serving Christ himself. Is it not a privilege to serve our Lord Jesus Christ? Instead of saying we can't give because we have needs of our own, they saw the opportunity in front of them as God's gracious provision and they considered it a, a privilege, a grace that they couldn't afford to overlook, that they couldn't afford to walk away from. And so they eagerly gave what they could financially and then they offered anything else that they had that might help beyond that. Now notice... Also what Paul said about them in verse 5. He said they gave themselves first to God and then to us by God's will. Now what does that sound like to you? Two weeks ago we just talked about the two greatest commandments, right? What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, give yourself first to the Lord and then to others. They're following the great commandments. These Macedonian churches didn't just give their money. They gave themselves. Now, this is helpful instruction for us then, right? When we think of giving, it's easy for us to compartmentalize it. We give some of our income over here, or we give some of our time over here, or our resources over here. But we're reminded right here that as Christians, giving is never compartmentalized. It's all-encompassing. We give ourselves wholly. And fully to the Lord. And all that we have is his. And we give ourselves wholly and fully to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Unified together under Jesus. Who share co-heirs with Christ himself in the inheritance to come. When we understand that. The Lord turns our hearts and helps us. Stop reluctantly asking, what am I supposed to give? And start joyfully asking, what can I give? What can I give? Paul was encouraging the wealthy Corinthians to follow the example of the poor Macedonians. These churches weren't just giving in response to a tangible need. They were giving in response to the gospel to the grace that they had received from Christ himself. They were giving in response to Jesus, and Paul is quick to point to Jesus in these next verses as the ultimate example of what it looks like to truly give. Look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 8. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace, I'm not saying this as a command, rather by means of diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. From Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we can see that the church didn't lack any spiritual gifts, and he lists some of those here. He was essentially telling them right here, look, listen, you excel in everything else that God has given to you. Now I want you to see this opportunity to give as another gift from God, a gift of grace from God. Cultivate this act of grace and grow in it until you excel in that too. Paul had proven the genuineness of his love for them earlier in this letter and he used this opportunity to test their own genuineness. 
If they were willing to give generously, it would show that they were actually willing to identify with Paul in his weakness, with the, with the brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem in their weakness, and with Christ himself in his weakness when he came, humbled himself and, and, and became obedient to death. But if they gave begrudgingly, grumbling and complaining, or if they didn't give it all, they refused to, to keep their word it would show that they would rather identify with the super apostles who loved only themselves. And then Paul tied the grace of giving with the grace of the giver, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul framed the gospel in financial language. Talk about uh, uh, bringing the realities of the gospel and connecting them to the realities of, the, of your life, right? He framed the gospel in financial language in order to help the, the Corinthians do this, connect their relationship with money to their relationship with Christ and remind them of what excelling in grace really looks like. Let's just examine this for a minute. Paul says, though Jesus was rich, Jesus is God. And as God, he is without need. He is fully sufficient in and of himself. From him and through him and to him are all things. Nothing exists apart from his creating and sustaining power. And there is no place anywhere that his glory does not prevail. That's Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Even though he's God, Jesus didn't consider that something to be exploited. Paul writes to the Philippians. Instead, he humbled himself and became a servant by coming into this world as a human being. And when he had come as a man, God in the flesh became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For our sake, he became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Listen, we sang it this morning. Our sins, they are many. We stood neath a debt we could never afford, right? Our sin has bankrupted us spiritually by sending us spiraling again and again deeper in debt, one that we could never repay. We owed God a perfect life of obedience, but the very first time we sinned against him, all we did was add to our debt from there. What we gave him instead was rebellion. We owed God a death for our rebellion, but we had no perfect sacrifice to give that would cover all of the wrong that we've done. And so Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but his life was a life of poverty. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It was a life of poverty. It was a life of suffering. It was a life of hardship. We saw all of this in John's gospel as we went through that together. And then in his abundant grace, Jesus took our abundant sin debt, mine and yours. Listen, so much sin just right here on the stage. My abundant sin debt, your abundant sin debt, he took that upon himself and he died in our place on the cross to pay that debt in full. Colossians 2 says it was nailed to the cross with him. And he purchased our complete forgiveness and on the third day he rose to prove that that was the case. Stamp of approval by the Father. Paid in full, done. 
And he reconciled us to God the Father forever. And he lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Ephesians 1, in Christ. And now we get to spend the rest of, the, of our days here and in the ages to come. Ephesians 2. So that God might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. Oh my goodness. Given to us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. You see, we had tremendous need. Tremendous need. And Jesus Christ willingly and eagerly and generously provided what we could not. Is that not grace? Is that not the greatest act of grace that we see in Scripture and anywhere? That's the grace that was given to the Macedonians. That's the grace that was given to the Corinthians. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ in here, that's the grace that's been given to you. Everyone who's come to depend on Jesus to remove their debt of sin, this is the grace that we sang about in the first song this morning. Grace alone. Would you walk away from such a generous God? If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, it's especially important that you understand that my agenda in here is not to solicit money from you or anybody else in this room. My agenda is the same agenda I have every Sunday morning. It's to give you Jesus Christ. To hold him up, not because he's weak in himself, but to, to, to set him before you and help you see, listen, he's the only one that can provide for your deepest need and settle your account with God. He's the only one that can provide for your every single need. When we look to people and things that, that in this world to give us what only Jesus can give us, all we do is put ourselves further and further into debt. So why not lay that debt at the cross this morning? Why not come to Jesus and hand it over to him? Put your trust in Christ. Why not follow him and experience the immeasurable riches of his grace forever? You do that by confessing your need to be reconciled to God and trusting in Jesus that he has paid your debt in full. You can walk out of here free, paid, done, finished, We wouldn't know what giving truly is apart from Jesus. He's the ultimate giver and the very definition of what it means to meet the needs of another. And Paul tells the Corinthians that there's actually gospel profit in generous giving. Look at verses 10 through 15. And in this matter, I'm giving advice because it is profitable for you who began last year not only to do something but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, talking about the church in Jerusalem, so that in their abundance... Or that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much. And the person who had little did not have too little. When we eagerly give to meet the needs of Christ's church, whether those needs are in another local body 
or right here on our own, everybody benefits. Everybody benefits because it's a tangible display of the gospel realities and a practical help to the body of Christ. But Paul was stressing here that it's the eagerness to give that pleases God. It's never the amount given. Can we just breathe a sigh of relief right there for a minute? It's the eagerness to give that God cares about, not the amount given. We have a tendency to associate generosity with what comes out of our wallets. That is not God's economy. God associates generosity with what comes out of our hearts. I need that mental shift. I need to remember that God sees generosity differently than I tend to assign it. One dollar, one dollar, 50 cents, a penny, two mites from a widow given eagerly is more acceptable, more pleasing to God than a billion dollars given resentfully. Keep that money. God's generosity flows out of our hearts, not our wallets. Paul wasn't pressuring the Corinthians to give beyond their means. He was simply encouraging them to keep the promise that they had already made. Keep your promise. And he wanted them to do it joyfully based on what God had already provided for them. This is also helpful instruction for us then, isn't it? Because sometimes we're tempted to feel either ashamed if we only are able to give a small amount or we are tempted to take credit if we're able to give a large amount. We either, we, we hit the gutter of pride or the gutter of shame. And God wants us to walk in the road of faithfulness and grace and freedom When we give in proportion to what God has given to us and we give it eagerly, God alone gets the glory and we profit by growing more in Christ-likeness and connecting these realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. And Paul made it clear here that it's not about everybody having the exact same amount. Instead, it's about gospel-centered love, giving of ourselves first to the Lord and then to one another and making sure that no need goes unmet no matter how big or small Verse 15 here, if you have a CSB Bible, it's, it's bolded. That means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Exodus 16, 8 is where he's quoting that from. It's referencing the time when God provided manna for the people of Israel in the wilderness. This is where give us our daily bread comes from. Some of them needed more because their families were bigger. Others needed less because their families were smaller. But those who gathered much did not have too much, and those who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had as much as they needed, and God was the one who provided for all of them. Paul was reminding the Corinthians that God had supplied their spiritual need from the abundant surplus of the Jerusalem church. And now God wanted to supply the material need of the Jerusalem church from the abundant surplus of the Corinthians. Now at this point, you might be thinking, okay, maybe my, maybe my view of generosity was different, and, and I'm thinking about that, but how, how do I know, how can I be sure that the money I give won't be misused? That's a valid question. 
The Corinthians had seen how the super apostles exploited them for money, and we are all too familiar with celebrity pastors who squander the church's finances and TV preachers who pad their own pockets by swindling people with a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity. Fortunately for us, Paul addresses this. He's going to answer your question here in these next verses. Look at 16 through 24. Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus, for he welcomed our appeal, <clears throat> excuse me, and, be, and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We've sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches, by the churches, to accompany us with his, this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we're giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We've also sent with them our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Paul and Titus and two other unnamed brothers in the Lord were going to be personally responsible for handling the gift, not only from the Corinthians, but also from some of the other churches as well. These guys were going to be in charge of a lot of money, a lot of money. But they were all men who had been tested and trusted in the churches. Did you notice that? He said they were appointed by the churches. They were praised not for their status or their popularity, but for their faithfulness to preach the gospel. They were grounded by their own dependence upon Christ and driven by their desire to glorify God in everything that they did. And because of that, they gave careful thought to do what was right and they were diligent to take precautions and handle the collection with integrity so that no one could accuse them. There wasn't even a hint there of being like the greedy super apostles. Again, this is helpful for us. You see, gospel-centered giving doesn't have to come at the expense of personal accountability. And personal accountability doesn't have to cheapen gospel-centered giving. There's not necessarily distrust there that has to take place. These two things are not enemies. They, they both aim to glorify the Lord himself, and the church ought to seek to keep these two things together. Money should always serve to advance the gospel. It should never be the other way around. Giving careful thought to do what is right is an exercise in wisdom, and the church that gives generously for gospel purposes is wise to put that gift into the hands of tested and trusted people who are grounded in their dependence upon Christ and driven by their desire to administrate that gift for the glory of the Lord himself. And I can stand here and tell you that I'm grateful that that can be said of both our previous treasurer, Shannon, and our current treasurer, Jennifer. And that you as church members have tested and trusted these saints, these servants. And you have appointed them to handle this money with integrity and diligence. As elders, neither Ben nor I know who gives or how much. And our desire is 
to maintain integrity and diligence and guard against both the temptation for greed and also the appearance of it. Our church budget is available to anyone who requests a copy of it, and we review it regularly at our covenant member meetings. If you, want to, if you haven't seen it, you want to see a copy of it, you can email bookkeeper at redeemermanunk.com, and Jennifer will send you one. And in an effort to strengthen accountability and gospel encouragement this er- in this area, from here on out, we're going to be adding a weekly giving update in our Sunday morning uh, bulletins, our programs. And then a monthly financial update will be sent out to all of our covenant members. We have nothing to hide. Nothing to hide in this area. After proving to the Corinthians that those who administrate the gift were accountable, Paul urged the Corinthians to be accountable themselves and cheerfully give the gift that they had promised. Now we're in chapter 9. We're going to go 1 through 9. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is, necessary, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred them up, most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation." Therefore I considered it unnecessary to urge the brothers to go <laughs> therefore I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not an extortion the point is this the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and the person who sows generously will also reap generously each person should do as he has decided in his heart there it is again in your heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion since God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Corinth was in the province of Achaia like Philippi was in the province of Macedonia. And here, Paul essentially told the Corinthians, hey, listen, you know the example that I just gave you about the eagerness of the Macedonians? Well, you were also an example to them. Their eagerness actually was fueled by your eagerness, your zeal. I told them about the promise that you made last year, and it stirred up most of them to give generously of their own accord. But now we have a dilemma here, right? And and the, the Corinthians know this as they're reading this, and Paul knows this as he's writing this. The dilemma is that the Macedonians actually followed through on their eagerness, their promise. And the Corinthians made a promise and they have yet to keep it. And it would be incredibly embarrassing if the only thing that the Corinthians contributed was an empty promise. Not only would it cause shame for a lot of people, but it would also be a poor reflection of the gospel. Now Paul's words here in verse 5 are important. They reveal his concern for preserving the integrity of the gospel over his own self-image. He wasn't ultimately sending the brothers to arrange the gift in advance in order to save face with the Macedonians. Like, hey, I told them about this. You're going to make me look bad. That's not the point there. He was giving the Corinthians another opportunity to fulfill their promise as an act of grace rather than an act of coercion. He wanted them to have joy, of the joy of giving the gift willingly instead of feeling forced to give out of guilt. 
You know that feeling when you, when you go to pay at the checkout in the grocery store and, and you're like sticking the debit card in there and the, the, the reader screen pops up with this prompt that says something like, would you like to donate an extra dollar to help homeless animals or do you hate puppies? Right? It, it probably doesn't really say that, but it makes you feel that way, Right? You feel manipulated in that moment because you came for some food for your family, not to fact check this charity in front of you and make a decision in a split second whether or not you are able to support that thing while you enter your PIN number. It's catching you unprepared. It's compelling you. It's coercing you to give. And it's easy to feel guilty if you decline. Now listen, if you donate to that organization, great. I hope that you've done your fact-checking ahead of time. Some of those charities are, are worth doing that for. But my point here is that this was not some quick decision that the Corinthians hadn't thought about and were forced to make in that moment. It was something that they had themselves willingly promised to do an entire year before this. And instead of manipulating them with guilt like the super apostles did, Paul was careful to remind them that this opportunity was a gracious gift from God and God himself would not fail to meet their needs according to his grace as they willingly and graciously gave to meet the needs of his brothers of our brothers and sisters in Christ their brothers and sisters in Christ Paul gave them an important principle in verse 6 he said the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and the person who sows generously will also reap generously Again, now, we can often tend to associate generosity with an amount. We can look at this principle and we can think, the more I give, the more I'll get. The less I give, the less I'll get. That's not what he's saying here. That's not the principle that Paul is teaching us in verse 6, that, that the Holy Spirit through Paul is teaching us in verse 6. He's adamant that generosity has nothing to do with the amount and everything to do with the heart. Do you know that's what God is after? Every single Sunday we come here, God is after our heart. Paul, Paul's language in verse 7 is intriguing. A cheerful heart sows generously, he says, and a reluctant heart sows sparingly. It's a matter of the heart. Do you know what a cheerful giver is? A cheerful giver is someone who finds his or her contentment in Jesus Christ and from that heart of contentment joyfully asks, what can I give? What can I give to support Christ's church? And he or she can ask that question because a cheerful giver trusts that God himself is able to make every grace overflow in order to provide everything that his church needs for excelling in the work of his kingdom. God will never underfund his gospel ministry. We need to remember that. And in verse 9, Paul quoted Psalm 112, verse 9. At first glance, that might seem like those words are describing God. They feel like it, right? But that psalm actually speaks about the characteristic of a righteous man. A righteous man. And Paul quoted that line to remind the Corinthians that generous giving is one of the ordinary marks of a Christ follower. He wasn't just encouraging the Corinthians to give. And this is maybe one of the biggest points we need to, to grasp this morning. He was reminding them that they already are givers. Because they've been remade in Christ's image. 
They're united to Christ, who is the ultimate righteous man that Psalm 112 points to, and the ultimate giver. Before we believed in Jesus, our identity used to be wrapped up in our sin, and sin always takes. It's a taker. Because we're consumed by sin, we are consumed by taking. But every believer is a new creation in Christ, and that means that he's changed us from being takers to being givers like him, and we grow, we cultivate, we, we learn how to do that more and more as we trust him. This passage isn't simply giving us a better understanding of money. It's actually meant to give us a better understanding of ourselves and our new relationship to Jesus. Do you know why God loves a cheerful giver? I've read that so many times. Sometimes it feels like, well, he's playing favorites, right? Here's why God loves a cheerful giver. Because God sees himself and his work in the person who gives cheerfully. Over and over throughout the pages of scripture, this is incredible. What do we find but a God who expresses his goodness and his love and his generosity through the act of giving? Creation is a gift from God. His covenants are a gift. The law is a gift. Redemption is a gift. He gave his one and only son. We read that in John 3. His word is a gift. His spirit is a gift. His church is a gift. Christ's return is a gift. Eternity is a gift. When you give with a generous heart, listen, no matter what the amount, what are you doing but reflecting the heart of our giving God and his grace. It's this gracious God that Paul points to in these final verses. We'll wrap up with these 10 through 15. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, so, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. In verse 6, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to sow generously. Here in verse 10, he told them why they would be able to do that. Because it's God who provides the seed for sowing. It's God who provides everything, and he provides in abundance. As we were reminded last week when John Bricker was here, he is the Lord of the harvest after all, is he not? Notice, though, that God provides the seed for sowing and not for hoarding. Paul told the Corinthians that they would be enriched in every way so that they could be generous in every way. But he wasn't promising that if they gave financially that God would necessarily reward them financially. Instead, Paul pointed to the greater profit that they would share in this harvest of righteousness, thanksgiving and glory to God, prayer on their behalf, and deep affection for them because of the surpassing grace of God in them. These are eternal rewards that are worth immeasurably more than any amount of money that passed through the Corinthians' hands. 
And once again, Paul tied everything back to the gospel. By fulfilling their promise to give, the Corinthians would be making an obedient confession of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. Why? Because God the Father had promised to give his son, and God kept his promise. When the Corinthians keep their promise, who are they reflecting? The promise-keeping God. You see, the gospel is not only preached with words of gracious truth, it's also lived with deeds of gracious love. And as a church plant that had received the gospel through Paul's preaching, the Corinthians had been given this gracious opportunity to live out that gospel in a way that would provide both relief and encouragement to their fellow believers in Jerusalem. In keeping their promise, the Corinthians were not merely providing financial support, they were providing gospel support. The harvest really is abundant. God's promised that the ministry of the gospel will transform hearts and bring people to faith in Christ. We could grow in our belief in that. I know I can. This is a hard place. But it's an abundant place. God has not promised that the ministry of the gospel will always be easy. Sometimes churches that minister out of spiritual abundance will find themselves in material need. Giving to meet the needs of the church is not a necessary evil that we have to deal with in those times. It's not the unavoidable business aspect of church planting. It's ministry to the saints for gospel purpose. It's an act of grace that we have the privilege of participating in for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the Lord himself. So we're going to end with a few questions. Do you consider giving to be a privilege? Are you able to give cheerfully? If so, then be encouraged by the surpassing grace of God at work in your heart and know that your cheerful giving is not only a display of the gospel, but it provokes many expressions of thanksgiving and glory to God. You're not just giving for ministry. Your giving is ministry. Are you reluctant to give? Maybe it feels like too much of a sacrifice for you, like, like a burden that you just cannot bear. You're wondering how you can put anything in the offering box when you can barely even put anything on the table. I want you to know that you're not alone in that feeling. But can I invite you to just with me for a moment fix our gaze somewhere else and remember Paul's words right here. You have a God who is able, able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything that you need, you, you may excel in every good work, including the good work of giving. He supplies the seed for the sower and the bread for food. You know what that means? He's the provider start to finish. He's the provider start to finish. The God who enabled the Macedonians to give is the God who enabled the Corinthians to give is the God who enables you and me to give. Our Lord is not asking you to give something you don't have. He's inviting you to give yourself first to him and then to others by God's will. This isn't ultimately about money. 
never was, never will be. It's about the heart. He's already proven through the Macedonians that he's able to produce a wealth of generosity even out of extreme poverty. Would you be willing to trust him with what he's provided for you? A church that's living richly in gospel promises is a church that is giving generously for gospel purposes. God intends this to be a regular way of life for his church and for every individual believer in it. As long as there is need of, for the gospel, there will be need to support the ministry of it. This passage began with the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. It ended with the surpassing grace of God in the Corinthian church. That same grace, that same grace has generously come to you and to me in Jesus Christ. So may we join our first century brothers and sisters in Christ and continue to see the giving opportunities that our Lord provides to us as acts of grace. And may we be, continue to be eager to give as an obedient confession of the gospel for the glory of the Lord himself. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it teaches our hearts. We pray, Lord, that any words that I have said this morning that are not yours, that those would fall on deaf ears, but that by your spirit and your word, you would pierce our hearts to yet again remember the glory of Jesus Christ, the goodness of our heavenly Father, the power of your spirit, the wisdom of your word, the unity of and joy of, of being in relationship with one another as your church. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your generosity here, that we might continue to minister the gospel, trusting that you are the one who provides this, the seed for the sower and the bread for food, and that you're able to make every grace abound, so that in everything, we have everything that we need to continue in this ministry. We pray all these things for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. We're going to respond with one song together. Let's stand and sing.